picking it up in verse 12. So go ahead and turn there if you're not there already. Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, picking it up in verse 12, going down to verse 25. So let's begin by reading the passage that we will be studying and then asking the Lord to meet us and to bless us in this time. Now, when Jesus heard that John, excuse me, had been put in prison, excuse me, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now when Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Lord, may you add your blessing to the reading of your word, and may you meet us here this morning as we study. Lord, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and may we trust in your word as you speak it to us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we had looked at the fact that Jesus, excuse me, the week before had been baptized by John the baptizer, and then he went out into the desert where he was tempted and tested for 40 days and for 40 nights, and then when Jesus came back from that time of testing, he actually began his ministry, and it's important to note that a period of about one year passed between verses 11 and 12. In fact, one thing that's important for us to note that we covered back when we did an introduction to the book of Matthew is that Matthew tends to take things sort of topically rather than chronologically. Mark and Luke take much more care to go through things chronologically. In fact, during this one year that passed between when Jesus came back from being tempted and tested in the desert and entering his ministry till the time we see here in verse 12 where 
when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, if you were to turn to the Gospel of John, you would find that John in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 3, verse 36, all of that occurs in this one-year period between when Jesus came out of the desert and when we uh, read here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. In fact, I'd like to recommend for you, and I'm sorry the cover has long since disappeared from this book, but this book is called A Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. A Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. And it's uh, just a book detailing all the gospels in chronological order and laying them out side by side so you can see how the gospels fit together, thus the title A Harmony of the Gospels. Not very expensive, but a great little book to help you kind of make sense out of what happens as you read through the four gospels. So I highly recommend this. And um, you can get it on Amazon, on christianbook.com. I'm sure there's probably other places. But A.T. Robertson, A Harmony of the Gospels. So John chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 3, verse 36 This year has passed, or during the passing of this year, there is so much that happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 1, 19 through 28 of John, John the baptizer was called in to testify before religious leaders. And you may remember that interaction as they questioned and quizzed John. They said, then, uh, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ? And if you're not Elijah, because they questioned him, they said, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet who is to come? Are you the Messiah? And uh, John, excuse me, said no, no, no to all of those things. And John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. This is John speaking to the religious leaders. Your eyes are blind to this man, the Messiah. It is he who is coming after me that is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And so John continued to baptize, and they continued to question, by what authority and why do you do these things? And then in uh, verses 29 through 34 of John chapter 1, John clearly declares that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not me, it's him. And he points to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then actually in in verses 35 through 42 of John chapter 1, Jesus actually began to call his first disciples. So he actually, uh, there were two of of John the Baptist's disciples who sort of looked after Jesus and, and they began to follow him. And he turned around and he said to them, what are you guys looking for? And he, they said, well, where are you staying? We kind of like to hang out with you, Jesus. And one of those two disciples, we're told, was Andrew. And Andrew became enthralled with Jesus, and he went and he sought out his brother, Peter. And so when he went and told Peter, he said, we have found the Messiah. Peter comes to Jesus with Andrew, and the first time he meets Jesus face to face, Jesus looks at him and says, I think we'll call you Cephas. And he gives him a new name. Again, in John 1, beginning in verse 43 through 51, Jesus then calls Philip and Nathanael to follow him as well. In fact, he used those same words. He says, follow me to Philip. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We've found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Famous statement. Philip said to him, Well, come and see. And so Jesus came, excuse me, uh, Nathanael came and Jesus saw Nathanael coming. And as he was walking, Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, Okay, how do you know me? We've never met. Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Communicating to Nathanael that he not just saw a, a, a body sitting under a tree, but Jesus had insight into this man's life, that he saw his heart. He saw that he was a man of pure intent, of pure motive. And so uh, Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. And Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, referring all the way back to Genesis, which we just studied, where that encounter came between Jacob and the Lord as Jacob wrestled and there was that ladder that he saw from heaven where the angels of God were ascending and descending. And Jesus is referring back to that and saying, that was me. That ladder was, was me. It was the angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth. And he says, I'm the one about whom that whole thing was, was pointing. And so Jesus called Philip and Nathanael to follow him. And then in chapter 2 of John, we know in the beginning that there was this wedding at this place called Cana of Galilee. And there Jesus worked his first miracle. And his mother came to him at the wedding and said, uh, son, they've run out of wine. Uh, we need you to do something. And he says, uh, Hey, hey, Mom, th this is not my time. I'm not supposed to be doing this stuff yet. It's not, it's not on God's plan. And she came and prevailed against him, and she said, you know, please. And so Jesus turned the water into wine, and we are told in that amazing story that only the servants who witnessed the event knew what truly happened. And so then shortly after this, a little later in John chapter 2, we have where Jesus, for the very first time, cleansed the temple that he went in and he made a prophecy concerning his resurrection. And he said, I tell you, all these stones will be torn down. And um, he made a prophecy about the resurrection. And of course, they were hung up on what he said about the stones being torn down. They said, look, Herod's been building this temple for 46 years and you're going to tear it down and restore it in three days. What in the world are you talking about? You can't even move a stone in three days. And Jesus said, you wait and see. And then at the end of chapter 2 of John into chapter 3, Jesus attends the Passover for the first time in the city of Jerusalem. And while he's there, he meets this man called Nicodemus as he is there teaching in the synagogues and ministering. And then you know that amazing story in John chapter 3 as Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be found out, but he was distinctly curious about this man Jesus, and he had a suspicion that he might be the Messiah. And so he comes and he has this, this deep, intimate conversation. And that's where we find those amazing words where Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
And as is typical for us as humans, Nicodemus looked at the statement and said, well, I'm an old man. I can't go back into my mother's womb. What are you talking about? And Jesus said, you're the teacher of Israel. You're a spiritually enlightened man, and you don't understand these things. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. And so it was at the end of this passage here of John chapter 3 where we find the words, John was not yet cast into prison. And all of this happened just before our verse here in Matthew 4.12. But in that last little section of John chapter 3, I want to remind you of something that John said that's of great importance to us. John said, he must increase and I must decrease. John spoke that not only about his role as the the prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah, but certainly he spoke of that in terms of understanding who Jesus was. And that's a a verse, that's a statement, John 3, verse 30, that shouts to us down through the ages, something that we need to remember. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. You see, as Jesus comes into our lives and as we believe in him and trust on him, we must understand who he is. And so with all of that as background, John uh, chapter 1 verse 19 through chapter 3 verse 36, we come to Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. That's all, that all took place in that year between when Jesus came out of the desert and now what we're reading about here. So Jesus, of course, had already uh, met these men. He had been ministering there in Galilee. And so uh, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, Matthew 4.12. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled. That was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Now let's stop for just a moment. Jesus chose in his ministry to make his home base the northern regions of Galilee. And if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll see where Jerusalem is, and Jerusalem's just sort of to the left of the Dead Sea. Then you see the Jordan River Valley that goes north, some 80 or so miles up to the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee's headwaters come from a mountain spring that comes out of a mountain up, which is actually in Jordan. And that's the whole region where most of the Gentiles lived. There were strong cities of uh, Jewish uh, people up through the region of Galilee, but the Jews mostly lived in the south around the city of Jerusalem and in those regions. Mostly the the Gentiles kind of kept to themselves up north. And Jesus, uh, having uh, been born in Bethlehem and ended up His family settled in Nazareth, which was up in the region of Galilee, decided to travel up at this point and make Capernaum and the region of Galilee the headquarters for his ministry. And that's what we'll see as we continue to go through this gospel. So leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. 
So he quoted from Matt, uh, Isaiah, rather, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The prophet Isaiah, you remember in Isaiah chapter 9, a little bit later in verses 6 and 7, we have that wonderful prophecy foretelling of Jesus' birth, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But in the beginning of Matthew, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9, as the prophet talked about this, he talked about people who walked in darkness. But by the time Matthew was quoting this passage, the situation was so discouraging that the people were sitting in darkness. And it's interesting that Jesus chose really to go to the Gentiles first. to go. And yes, he taught in the synagogues on the weekends, on Saturdays, during the Sabbath. But he went to minister specifically to the Gentiles, to those who were sitting in darkness. The, the Jews were called by the Lord in the Old Testament to take the good news that God had given them and to spread it to the Gentiles, but they didn't want to do that. They saw the Gentiles as unclean. In fact, they had a term for Gentiles. They called them Gentile dogs, and they saw them as nothing more than firewood or fodder for the, for the fuel of hell. And they had a very low and a dim view of the Gentiles. So the Lord Jesus himself settles among the Gentiles. There is a Jewish presence there, but he's, he went specifically to minister to the Gentiles of that region. And from that time in verse 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we looked at John as he came on the scene, remember John said, repent. That was his word. We looked at the issue of repentance, and here again it comes up as Jesus says, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we need to understand something about the word repent. It may not be a popular word today. If you use that word in conversation with someone who's not a church-going person, they might look at you and think, old school, right? They might look at you and say, you're a little crazy. You must be a religious wacko because you use the word repent. But understand there is not a word really in the English language that we can use to soften. The word repent that Jesus uses is meant to be a loving word because telling someone the truth is the most loving thing we can do. We have to keep in mind, of course, our manner and method of delivery may turn people off. Hopefully we deliver it in a loving way. But just to remind us, repent means not only to change our minds, but to allow our hearts to be changed. You see, the word repent means change. And change, if we're all honest, is something we hate, isn't it? We like our routines. We have our routine in the morning. We get our coffee we have our breakfast. We probably have the same thing every day. If you're like me, you're a creature of habit. You have your toast. You have your coffee. You have your muffin, whatever you have. And you get up, and you get up at a certain time, and you do this thing, and then you do that thing, and then you go do that, and then you go throughout your day, and you have things that you do. Then you come to the end of the day, and you have your things that you do, and you have things you do on Monday. You have things you do on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You have your routine on the weekends. And we don't like our routines to be messed with, do we? We love routine. But if we are going to consider seriously 
the word repent from John as well as from Jesus, you have to understand that repentance is change. Not just changing the way we think, and that's the first step, but allowing our heart to be changed. And if necessary, allowing our lives to be changed, allowing our routine, God forbid, to be changed. Repentance involves change. And notice that it says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say. Now, the issue of preaching is always an interesting word. One person wrote this, let us notice the way in which our Lord commenced his mighty work. He began to preach. There is no office so honorable as that of the preacher. There is no work so important to the souls of men. It is an office which the Son of God was not ashamed to take up. It is an office to which he appointed his 12 apostles. It is an office to which Paul in his old age specially directs Timothy's attention as he charges him with almost his last breath to preach the word in season and out of season. It is the means which God has always been pleased to use above any other for the conversion and the edification of souls. The brightest days of the church have been those when preaching has been honored. The darkest days of the church have been when it has been lightly esteemed. Let us honor the sacraments and public prayers of the church and reverently use them. The man who's writing this wrote of a different age, thus the language. But let us be aware that we do not place them above the preaching of the word. You see, we've reached a time in church history when the preaching and the teaching of God's word is really considered to be more of a, a matter of entertainment. If we can't make it fit within a 45-minute window so that we can have the turnover between the services and, and have everything happen according to an exact time frame. And listen, if, if you have multiple services, that's great. I'd love to have multiple services. That'd be awesome. But too often we can get in these ruts and we begin to compromise on the things that really matter. Why does the church exist? Why do we come together? Is it not for worship? Is it not for the preaching and teaching of God's word? Is it not for the fellowship that we share together as the body of Christ? Is it not so that we can break bread together, the bread of the Lord's table? These are the essential things that draw us together as a church and the preaching and the teaching of God's word is to be central to that. Some have said, preaching is proclamation, teaching is explanation. Or, preaching is simply to state or to proclaim the truth. Another person said, preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. Let me say that again. Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. Preaching is always to be done with authority and with the authority of God himself. You see, I have no message apart from this book. And I have no authority apart from the authority of the scriptures of God's word. The difference between preaching and teaching is often one of emphasis and manner, not of content. Preaching is the uncompromising proclamation of certainties. Teaching is the explanation of the meaning and the significance of those certainties. And so Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interestingly, 
In Matthew's gospel, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. In Mark and Luke's gospel, they use the phrase the kingdom of God. And the reason for this is very simple. Matthew, going back to our introduction at the beginning, Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. And the Jews honored the name of God. In fact, they would not use the name of God if they could avoid it. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees, of course, when they came to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, would get up, uh, take a shower, fresh change of clothes, uh, get a fresh uh, pen and a fresh inkwell, and then sit down. And then when they wrote the name of God, they didn't write out his full name, Yahweh. They wrote out a shortened consonant form of his name. And then they had to go back and count all the letters to make sure they all added up properly. They, they honored and valued the name of God. So as Matthew was writing to the Jew, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with the term kingdom of God. There's no kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God as if there's two separate things. Don't be confused by that. It's just that Matthew is emphasizing the kingdom of heaven to appeal to the Jewish mind. And so Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The phrase of kingdom of heaven is found 32 times in Matthew's gospel. And so as we read that, understand that he's talking about the kingdom of God. So in verse 18, and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. According to the figures from the Jewish historian Josephus, there were some three million people populating the region of Galilee at this time. So there was plenty of people around for Jesus to speak to and to minister to. We find in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, this same account where Jesus uh, walked into the situation seeing Simon and um, Andrew by the sea, casting their net. And he called them and he said in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Then in verse 19 of Mark 1, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And he called them and they left their father Zebedee and they went after him. Luke in his gospel, chapter 5, Similar situation where it tells us the story, but it goes into a little bit more detail in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And here's the familiar story that's taking place here in this same instance in, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus was there by the lake, and he got into one of the boats, which, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the feet of Jesus. And he said, excuse me, fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, fish which they had taken. 
And also, uh, so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So that's what's happening here in this situation. That's the backdrop. That's the full story, the whole picture of what's taking place in this moment. And this, this moment is they had fished all night and caught nothing, and they're probably standing there on the edge of the water washing their nets and mending them while Jesus is sit, sitting in the boat teaching, and they're doing their fishing thing and listening, and the people are sitting on the shore listening. And then Jesus says, let's go out and uh, a little further and, and cast the nets and see what happens, because Jesus knew, of course, they had fished all night and caught nothing, and he, he sees the moment. And he worked a miracle before their eyes. And they went out just a little ways. I mean, they didn't go all the way out into the, to the Sea of Galilee, the, the lake. The lake is something like seven miles wide and 15 or 20 miles long. It's a pretty big lake. So they just went out far enough to where they could throw the nets and catch some fish. And as they did this, as they obeyed the, the word of Jesus in that moment... And they saw this tremendous haul of fish. I mean, they didn't normally see this on a good day. This was something that was over the top. And as this happened, then Jesus turns and says, follow me. You can see the impact of the moment, can't you? You can see the dramatic impact of what just happened before their very eyes. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Pointing to the fact that, you know what, you can catch fish anytime. But if you follow me, you'll catch men. Jesus had four and possibly seven men in the band of disciples who were professional fishermen. Why would Jesus call so many fishermen to his side? This is one man's opinion. For one thing, fishermen were busy people. Usually, professional fishermen did not sit around doing nothing. They either sorted their catch, prepared for a catch, mended their equipment, the Lord needs busy people who are not afraid to work. Fishermen have to be both courageous as well as patient people. It certainly takes patience and courage to win other people to Christ. Fishermen must have skill. They must learn from others where to find the fish and how to catch them. Fishing for men demands skill too. These men had to work together and the work of the Lord demands cooperation. But most of all, fishing demands faith. Fishermen cannot see fish. And they are not sure that their nets will enclose them. Fishing for souls requires faith and alertness and prayer. And you see, the first call, as Jesus said to these men, is always to follow him. Follow Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. We are always called to follow before we are called to serve. And every disciple is called to serve. There is a sense in which there is the general call to follow him to all men, but we also understand that many are called but few are chosen, meaning few actually answer the call. Few actually truly follow Jesus. Service comes from the, the intimacy of fellowship that we have with him. It comes from following him. This is why following him must come first. 
then service comes from or flows from this following closely. Thus, Jesus used the term in John 15, abide in me, stay close, remain. You see, you can't follow from a distance. You have to follow in close proximity. Sometimes in our lives, we make the mistake of looking at life, looking at work, looking at uh, occupation as a distinction or a difference between the secular and the sacred. But you see, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, for the follower of Jesus Christ, there really is and there shouldn't be a distinction or a division between secular and sacred. Because if I'm called to follow Jesus first, then the things I do in life, the people I encounter in life, they're all a part of that. They're all a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Yes, I might have to go to work and do things. I might have to serve a family, whatever it is that you do. But there is no distinction between secular and sacred. It's all sacred before God. Following Jesus costs us something. You see, when Jesus called these men to follow him, they had to turn and to leave things behind in order to follow him. It may cost us riches. It may cost us time. It may cause us, cost us leisure and relaxation. You see, following is the flip side of repentance, isn't it? Change, changing our mind, allowing our heart to be changed, allowing our direction and focus in life to be changed. You see, we can't follow Jesus out of our own convenience. It doesn't work that way. We can't follow Jesus part-time. We follow him or we don't. Following Jesus may cost us the accumulation of treasures and wealth on the earth. Following Jesus may cost us those things that are most valuable to us. Well, they immediately in verse 20 left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, Jesus, verse 21, saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So you can see very clearly just from the simple reading here that following him means making a choice. It means making a sacrifice. It means counting the cost. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, we find some greater insight into this situation. Luke, chapter 14, verse 25. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down and first count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, 
whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, Jesus goes into a little more detail of what it, what it means to follow him. <clears throat> he gives us a greater insight into the cost of following him. And I see that this is, in my opinion, a, a great problem in the church at large today. So many of us want to follow Jesus according to convenience. We want to follow him on a part-time basis as we have time. We want to follow him on Sundays and other days of the week that are convenient for us. But you see, following Jesus is a full-time venture. It means we follow him from the get-go. When the call comes, the call of salvation, to follow me. You see, that's a call to abandon the old life, to leave everything behind and to come and to follow him. In fact, Paul, the great apostle, as we look at him, he would say he wasn't great. Paul in Acts chapter 20 was traveling back to Jerusalem. He met the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus and he said this to them. You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears, the trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews, testifying to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And here's the, the, the kicker, the punchline. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. You see, Paul understood the cost. I don't count my life dear to myself. And he says, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said in Philippians chapter three, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things for the uh, excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul had the, the correct understanding that the most important thing in life is to follow Jesus. Paul, a little later in chapter 3 of Philippians, said, not that I've already attained, I've already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. Listen, that doesn't mean just to the Apostle Paul. You see, if Christ Jesus has laid a hold of my life and your life, he's done so for a purpose. You see, we should never make the mistake that if we sit here today and we're named by the name of Christ and we can say I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb and I belong to him and I'm saved, that I was just saved so that I won't go to hell. Jesus saved us for a purpose. We are saved for a reason. Every one of us has a purpose in our lives from God himself. And here's the question for you. Do you know what that purpose is? He said, follow me. Paul followed him. He says, I, I've, I'm, I'm pressing on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended 
But one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind, the nets, whatever. And I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, another punchline, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul is saying a mark of maturity is someone who understands that Jesus has called them toward an upward call. You know, my job, if my boss sees this, I might be out of a job. It's on the internet, right? He can look at it. He could probably find it. My job is a tent-making job. That, that's a term from the book of Acts as Paul would go and do ministry, but he would go make tents, his profession that he was sort of born into. You know, all rabbis were taught to have something to fall back on. So his tent-making profession was making tents, rather his profession was making tents. So there was a couple of times in the book of Acts, he went off and made tents to get some money, came back so he could support himself so he could continue the ministry. The job didn't consume his life. The job was there to, to aid and abet the calling of God on his life. It's interesting, uh, I was just telling Pastor Mitch this morning, um, a man who, whom we both know, a man who was one of his professors in Bible college who taught him Greek and who I, I'm blessed to be able to call a friend, Pastor Dave Shirley, um, posted this yesterday on Facebook, and when I read it, I was like, I have to share this. This is, this is what it means. This, this, this plays right into what we're talking about. And so here's what he wrote. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul, this is from Galatians chapter 1, Paul spent undistracted time alone with God in Arabia, perhaps much like Moses, who spent 40 years on the backside of the desert, or like David alone in the fields with the sheep, the greatest thing you will probably ever do is to reveal Christ. And let it be because it pleases God to reveal his son in you and in me. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Peter, James, John are of great value as they point to or reveal Christ. If you know someone well, having lived life with them, hearing their words, watching their actions, and catching their vision experience, excuse me, catching their vision, then you may be able to tell others about them because of your firsthand experience. It's the same with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, makes it possible for you to, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, share him with others. If he is real to you, then you can make him real to others. Seeing someone fly a plane is one thing, getting into a simulator is another, but actually flying the plane with passengers on board is a, a quite real and sobering experience and responsibility. Once I was blind, but now I see is the simple key. Paul had known the scriptures while persecuting the churches, but when he met Christ, the eyes of his understanding opened to see Christ through the Old Testament, and he powerfully presented the living Messiah. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. 
Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for the purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Because Paul met Jesus personally, he now had the scriptures opened up to him so that he could, by the powerful revelation of the Holy Spirit, prove that this Jesus is the Christ. Some preach about Christ, others preach Christ. He knew the scriptures intellectually before, and he could have talked about the coming Messiah, but now, knowing the Christ of scripture, he could make him known. Let it also be true of you and me. Following Jesus means we get to know him. It means that we know something of that which we speak. We're not just relating information and facts. We're not just saying, well, this Jesus of the Bible is someone you ought to look into. We ought to be able to say, as Peter said, be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you, to make a defense of the hope that's within you. You see, we can only get there by following Jesus. We can only get there by getting to know him. I can tell you directly as a person who's lived many years in this cycle, when I'm strong and having regular time in the word and I'm me, just me and the Lord, I'm just sitting down and reading and letting him speak to me. I need to be spoken to. I need to be ministered to. When that's happening, I'm knowing him. I'm following him. I'm walking with him. But when I get off track with that, when, when I miss a day or two or a week or a month, you see, I'm no longer following him. If I am following him, it's at a distance. It's like a, a little skiff boat being towed by a big ship, and I'm so far back, and the rope is 200 feet long, I'm so far back, I can't even talk to anyone on the boat. You see, that's the way it can be so often in our lives. Jesus said to these disciples, follow me. And we know as we read and as we study and as we go along here, it's because they lived with Jesus in daily life. Now, we may not have the joy and the privilege of walking with Jesus as we may with others in our lives who live in our house, but we can still walk with him. We can still follow him through meeting him in his word and asking him to meet us in our prayer closets. Well, Jesus, in verse 23, went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. You can certainly see how that would get people's attention, wouldn't you? If Jesus was here today and walking down the street and he saw people limping and lame or he went into the ER at the hospital and began to heal people or he went down to children's hospital and began to heal people or he went into the cancer ward and began to heal people, what an amazing thing that would be. Then his fame, verse 24, went throughout all Syria it began to spread to the surrounding region. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And as it lists these things that we're about to read here, I want you to note something about this list. These are the things that nobody could help with. These are the things that there was no doctor, no person could help with these things. Look at the list. Those who were demon-possessed. Doctor can't help you with that, can they? Epileptics, paralytics. And he healed them. I mean, this wasn't praying for a cold to run its course and go away and that they would feel better. 
These were impossible situations. Being demon-possessed. My goodness. Epileptics. Rebecca is an epileptic. Paralytics. You're paralyzed. Something's happened. You're crippled. You can't walk. You can't move. And he healed them. Oh, to God that he were doing these things today that people might believe. I often wonder why he's not. As I talk to missionaries, I hear them talking about him doing it where they are. In parts of the world, like Galilee, where there's not religious people, where, where there's only darkness and light, evil and good. You see, in our world, we live in a world of, of shades of gray, don't we? There's many churches, there's many faiths. People believe that all roads lead to God. You can pretty much take any road to God that you want. Not when you have darkness. Remember, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis. That's the region of the ten cities up around the, the north, northern and northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. From Jerusalem, 80 miles south, Judea, the whole region of the southern part of Israel. And beyond the Jordan over to the east, uh, uh, Jordan and Syria itself to, to the east and, and to the north. What Jesus did, how he ministered, you see, people began to hear about it. They began to be drawn to Jesus. And it was because it was Jesus, obviously. But you know, to fast forward to today, he's put his Holy Spirit in us. In whom? His people, his disciples, his followers. Jesus' call then and his call today is to follow me. I want to see him do things. I want to see him do things in and through my life. I want to see him do things in and through your life. I want Jesus begin to move in these dark days and that the light of the gospel of Christ might shine through our lives. That we might understand, as we said earlier, that there is no distinction between secular and sacred. We're either saved or we're not. And if you're saved and Christ is in you and you have the Holy Spirit and you have his word, then there's no turning back. You see, we are called to follow Jesus, and to follow him means that we will become like him. It's understood, it's implied, that as we follow Jesus, we will be conformed to his image. You see, this is what he wants to do in our lives. Here's the question for me, for you. Will we allow him to do that? Will we follow him closely or at a distance? Will we allow him to make change in our lives, or are we going to hold on to the way things are. Listen, the way things are, the way things were in the past, doesn't matter. What happened in the past? Listen, some of us just need to let stuff go. Maybe hurts, things like that. We just need to let it go. Paul said in Philippians 3, I forget what lies behind. I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some of you are looking for resolution to things. Listen, you're never going to get resolution to. The Word of God has already said, forgive and forget. Just forgive. You're saying, but it's not that easy. Yes, it is. You're, it's not that easy because you don't want to. 
But if we by faith say, look, Lord, you're saying what's in the past doesn't matter. Leave it behind. I'm going to do that. By faith, I'm going to do that. I don't know how. I don't need to go through two weeks or three months or three years of counseling to get over this. Lord, you can heal it. If Jesus can heal a paralytic, if he can cast a demon out of someone, can't he heal you and I of our emotional trauma of things that happened 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, even when we were kids? Yes, he can. If he can forgive sins, can't he heal the the hurts of the past? Yes, he can. If we are willing, he is able. Am I willing? So, Lord, today we come to you, and uh, Lord, we want to follow you. For some of us, maybe that's an easy thing. For others, it's, it's a hard thing. We don't know how. Lord, show us. Show us how. Show us, like these disciples, how to follow you, how to stay close, how to live near you, and how to just let go of all these things, the, the things of this world, the things of the flesh, the things of the past, the things that bind and constrain us, Lord, addictions, habits, unwillingness to change. Lord, if we call it what it is, it's pride. And may we trust you. May we follow you, Lord. May we let go and follow Jesus with an abandon where we understand the things of this earth, as the old hymn says, may go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May you do these things in us today, Lord, for us. May you remove the blinders of the things that that we don't see that are causing problems. And may we just by faith just let go and cast off the, the moorings and drift out into the deeper waters and let you lead us and let you guide us and let you provide for us, Lord. Lord, for some of us, it's very scary to think of letting go and giving up control. But Lord, there's no other way. We can't follow you and maintain control. We follow you or we don't. Lord, help us to follow you. We love you, Lord. And Lord, like that, that man who, whom you pointed to one day and he was beating his breast and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that's our cry this morning. Lord, be merciful to us, sinners. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. All right, let's come together and sing a song as we are dismissed today and just allow the Lord to minister to us.